0: Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Uh, Well, I do warmly welcome you if you are uh, visiting uh, with us this morning. My name's Megan, I'm the senior minister here, and uh, we are looking at the hard parts of this passage, uh, not the lawsuits, I wish. We're talking about sex. They say if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. (laughs) Well, I was born in the 70s, uh, so I wasn't there regardless. But the impact of the sexual revolution, make love, not war, has shaped my life nonetheless, as it has yours. Sex has been almost completely severed from its traditional context and its consequences. And the importance in our society now for the individual to have freedom to express his or her inner self has become our guiding principle almost to the exclusion of all others. Of course, it wasn't just the 1960s that saw a sexual revolution. I did my uh, final year thesis for my Master of Divinity on the Protestant acceptance of contraception. And I learned that the early decades of the 21st century, nope, the 20th century, were another time of great change in what was considered moral in the sex lives of adults. And the guiding principle in that case was conscience. Even the 1700s were a time of sexual change as people moved out of small communities where every action was seen and censured and people knew if you'd be naughty to the industrialised cities where there was far greater freedom, far greater anonymity and far greater opportunity to fulfil your sexual desires. I think what I'm saying is that whatever chance we get, human beings will seek out sexual freedom. The sexual drive is strong. Sex is pleasurable. And the complex rewards we find physically, emotionally, socially, neurochemically through sex are almost unparalleled. Of course, Corinth In Greece, in the first century, was no different. As a port city, with a temple to the goddess of love, sex was constantly on the agenda and available. They might not have had signs saying, make love, not war, but they had adopted their own slogans. Outside the church... And inside, some of which had come to Paul's ears. And so we're going to start here in our passage at verses 12 and 13, where we see two life philosophies or slogans that the Corinthian church had embraced. I have the right to do anything and food for the stomach and the stomach for food But God will destroy them both. The Apostle Paul preached freedom. Wherever he went, he spoke about how believers in Christ were free. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In Galatians 5, he writes, It is for freedom. That Christ has set us free. The fact was, those who had come to trust in Jesus in Corinth were free. If they'd come to know Jesus from a Jewish background, they were free from the crushing burden of pleasing God through obedience to the law. If they'd come to know Jesus from a Gentile background, they were free from routines of empty worship, from the shame, honour, culture in which they lived. And people from all backgrounds were free to approach God with confidence because Jesus had given them access and righteousness. They were free, free from guilt, free from fear, free from punishment. But the apostles' teaching had become twisted, probably not for the first and definitely not for the last time. What Paul had taught about freedom had been twisted to become a justification for all kinds of things, including sexual license, sexual freedom. Maybe Paul had even said the phrase, everything is permissible for me, or I have the right to do anything. If he had, I suspect he'd been teaching on uh, what Christians were able to eat, or where, where they could worship, what days were holy, now that they were not under the Old Testament law. But after Paul had moved on to Ephesus in his mission, the Corinthians had changed the game. They decided that this freedom now meant no limits on behaviour and especially no limits on behaviour that satisfied the desires of the physical body. The law was dead and gone. Freedom reigned. But they'd got it wrong. While the law of the Old Testament no longer functioned as a burden that highlighted their failure, it still showed what was good and useful for human flourishing. Richard Borkham, uh, who's a great scholar, writes, Biblical commands are not arbitrary decrees, but correspond to the way the world is and will be. Biblical commands are not arbitrary decrees, but they correspond to the way the world is and will be. The moral instructions were not the way to salvation. They never had been. But they were still an essential insight into what enables human beings to flourish as individuals, families, communities, a world care for the vulnerable, sanctions against violence, generosity with money, a high view and respect for the institution of marriage, honesty, respect for persons and property, examinations of the attitudes of the mind, like jealousy and pride, wise decision making, habits for hygiene. All of these are wrapped up in Old Testament law. And so just because Christians are free from the law doesn't mean that they are free from the need to live in ways that they're designed to live, that are best for them. And so that's what Paul is getting at first as he counters the twisting of his teaching with these two slogans. He says... Yes, I did say I have the right to do anything. But you must know that not everything is good for you. Not everything is going to help you flourish as a human and as a Christian. And yes, I did say all things are in my power. But I also taught you that you should not be overpowered by anything so that you can worship and serve the Lord. The human body has various appetites. Food, drink, sleep, sex. They are normal and a sign that we are functioning as designed. But Paul and Jesus would say that certain ways of satisfying any of those appetites may not be beneficial to the human person or to human relationships or to human society as a whole. The body cries out for food, but not all food is going to nourish and strengthen us, even if it comes from a drive-through and stops the hunger for a bit. So I've heard The human body wants to avoid pain and anxiety. But long-term use of alcohol or prescription painkillers end up causing more damage than they appeared to solve at the start. And the human body experiences sexual desire, sometimes less, sometimes more. But certain things that we do or use to satisfy that desire will lead to damage, disease, relational dysfunction or addiction. Since Hugh Hefner published the first Playboy magazine in 1957 with Marilyn Monroe as the centrefold... The acceptance, normalisation, and lucrative nature of the pornography industry has just reached saturation point. But in the last 10 years, the damage of this highly accessible pornography to individuals and society has become increasingly clear, and I don't mean in the church, everywhere. There's no doubt that pornography, something which from the sexual revolution we said was normal, natural, to be enjoyed without judgment, has mastered us. And big business is cashing in on human sexual desire. Addiction to pornography to the point where a person cannot function sexually outside of the context of pornography or where the use of their time, including their work time, is controlled by needing to access porn, or where they find themselves searching more and more degrading content that they would have once considered taboo, or where they begin coercing sexual partners to perform acts that are likewise painful or degrading. Over the last two years, an investigation into the largest supplier of online pornographic videos, PornHub, has found swathes of child sexual exploitation material on their site, as well as videos created through human trafficking practices or uploaded without the consent of those depicted. No, no, you know it's a real problem when the banks get involved, and MasterCard and Visa both realised that the jig was up and they pulled their platforms from, first of all, the uh, providing ways for people to pay for access to the sites and then only this year withdrawn use of their services for advertising on the site, effectively demonetising the whole event, which is great. Christians are not immune to either the lure or the damage of pornography. We are all, Christians and non-Christians alike, sexual beings, and sexual gratification on demand in private can be very hard to resist. At Deep Creek, we've had some open conversations on this in the past. People have shared their testimony of their challenges, but that was a long time ago. It was before my time as possibly before your time. And so there's always a need to talk about it, to be open about it, and to find someone to whom you can be accountable. You can talk to me, you can talk to Ben, uh, or you can uh, find ways for me to anonymously refer you to uh, several Christian psychologists I know who are experts on sexual addiction. So the Apostle Paul has tried to qualify his teaching on freedom. But now he turns to the attitude of the Corinthians to the body. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Jesus had said that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them. For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, talking about food laws and purity. The Corinthians, however, had taken that to mean that physical things didn't have an impact on the spiritual. Food, drink, clothes, social norms, even sex, were temporary and just physical. They weren't eternal. They weren't spiritual matters. They weren't important in this new age of the spirit. If food was no longer a spiritual thing and it didn't matter what you ate, then it didn't matter what else you did with your body and its natural appetites. If you were hungry, you ate. If you were thirsty, you drank. If you were tired, you slept. If you were stirred by sexual desire, you found a way to have sex. But unlike Paul's wisdom regarding freedom, don't be mastered by anything, it's not good for you, that's quite palatable. We understand that. We understand that in, uh, as I've said, about pornography. Paul's counter to this idea is radically different to our world. The body, he says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Honour God with your body. In the West in 2022, we have a very conflicted understanding as to the place of the human body in morality. We know instinctively that a person's body is this sacred space and that coercion uh, or violence against a person, their physical body is wrong. We spend billions a year on health food, diets, gyms, so I've heard uh, vitamins, to love our bodies the best way we can. But we're constantly commodifying bodies for advertising, social status, entertainment. And then we're deeply ambivalent about how we inhabit our physicality. What the implications of what our body is like might have for who we are, our identity we have an almost total allegiance to the idea that our identity is about our inner self, something that sort of resides somewhere between here and and here. And our highest aim is to let that inner world find expression in who we are perceived to be and in what we're given freedom to do. Our body doesn't get first say. It doesn't define our identity. And paradoxically, its behavior doesn't define our virtue. If our body has urges, then fulfilling them has no impact on who we are as an individual. But yet, uh, if we have desires or needs or a sense of what is right for us that comes internally, then our body just needs to come along for the ride. But Paul tells us something different. God deeply values human bodies. And when he sees you, he doesn't see an invisible inner part of you. He sees all of you. Every mucky, messy, squishy part of you is you. And God loves you. God came to earth in Jesus in a body. He died in a body. He rose in a body. And God has designed the resurrection from the dead to be so that our bodies are part of it. Transformed, yes. Glorious, yes. Fit for the new heavens and the new earth, yet, yes. But not left behind. Not discarded. Not unimportant. Our bodies are not just one part of us that can be prioritised away below the spiritual or the emotional or even the mental. We honour God in our body. God loves and places his lordship on our body and God is served in and through our bodies. Our world has three main categories for determining sexual morality. Consent, culture, and commitment. If consenting adults have agreed to an action, then it is acceptable. Those who are unable to consent, like children, must be protected. And where consent is not present in a sexual act... That must be prosecuted. And so sexual education now becomes consent education. Now, with culture, we understand that some minority cultures still hold views that might need to be tolerated at the moment, like the the Pacific Islander manly players who refuse to wear the rainbow jerseys uh, in their rugby match but it is really the majority culture that determines what is right and wrong and we are it is acceptable for us to become less and less tolerant of views that differ from this majority position and commitment sex outside of a committed relationship is fine. We have reached that point in our society since the sexual revolution where that, whether it be hookup culture, friends with benefits, is really acceptable. But the breaking of a commitment through cheating or adultery is still frowned upon and even considered morally wrong in some cases. But Paul is now giving us a new category for determining sexual morality. And he says it is embodied holiness. He has called the Corinthians to live holy lives. And that might mean no slander, no gossip, uh, not stealing, not taking other people's money through uh, falsehood. But he's now bringing it right into the heart of the human experience, our body. The saying used to be that uh, when we become a Christian, we invite Jesus into our heart. And as the seed of the will, yes, absolutely, that's true. But Paul is saying when you know the Lord Jesus, you've invited him into your body and he's pleased to dwell there. He doesn't reject your body, no matter how big or small, short or tall, young or old, squishy or toned, functional or dysfunctional, painful or full of health. Jesus is pleased to dwell with us and in us for our whole journey of aging and growth, and he knows that at every moment we have the potential to use who we are in all of our bodily strength or weakness to glorify him. And he invites us to be part of his body as well. When we put our trust in him, we suddenly become part of Christ's body that is mysteriously both in heaven at the Father's side and on earth present by his Holy Spirit. His lordship is over our bodies, but we are also sharing In his body. Well, just as people today might use a hookup app or online pornography to satisfy a sexual urge in the body, the Corinthian Christian men were using prostitutes. As I said, in a port city, prostitution was always present. And just like pornography, prostitution was not a victimless sin. Many prostitutes, male and female, were slaves and they were exposed just as sex workers today to sexually transmitted disease for women, the risk of pregnancy and more. But Paul won't use does this do damage, is there consent to speak to this question of Corinthian men using prostitutes, he's now calling them to embodied holiness because Christ is in their bodies and they are in his. So he writes, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. There is so much richness in the positive teaching on what Paul is saying about who we are in Christ. But what I want to focus on for the time that we have left is the definition of sexual immorality. Now, Paul has already listed for us three specific examples of what he considers to be unholy bodily behaviour. Adultery, when you're married, having sex with someone else who is not your spouse. Prostitution, paying someone for the sex act. And men having sex with men, that's the um, kind of formal translation of the word uh, in the original Greek. Um, We don't have any word for kind of gay or gay identity or, or, or sexual orientation, focusing on that particular act. And perhaps there was too a connection with some of the temple prostitution because they were both men and women. But each of these are only subheadings under the larger term, sexual immorality, which Paul uses as well as these. And it is hard to know sometimes, outside of these really obvious things that make us upset, like adultery or prostitution, what constitutes Immoral sex, especially today. Now, the church has long been known for its prohibition of premarital sex. But it's surprisingly difficult to prove that from the Bible, unless you read the whole thing. There's no one verse that says, do not have sex before you get married, that you could put on a T-shirt, which would not be at all popular. (laughs) But this is for lots of reasons. One, the culture into which the scriptures were written almost at every point assumed that heterosexual marriage was the foundation of society. Two, marriage was different both in very ancient Old Testament times and in Jesus' times. There was no going out or dating, living together. There was no option. Families arranged good matches for their children years in advance, and when the betrothal had ended and the financial, housing, social, hospitality arrangements had been made, a wedding would take place and the sexual act would follow. But we know that there was an expectation that no sexual activity would uh, take place outside of the wedding because Deuteronomy 22 talks about a number of situations where there are sanctions or consequences for certain sexual behaviours. So, for example, if a woman was found not to be a virgin on her wedding night then there was a consequence akin to finding her to be an adulterer. Talk to me afterwards about the complexities of that, How you, or don't. But the same chapter in Deuteronomy also says that if a man has sex with an unmarried or unbetrothed woman, then he must marry her. The sexual act doesn't marry you to someone, but it is only appropriate, says the scripture, in the context of marriage because it has a special purpose. It makes two people one flesh. Now, we might find in the New Testament that there is some reframing or rejection of that law. We find that with the food laws. I understand that. But we don't. Both Jesus and Paul use the phrase, and Paul did here, one flesh, and it brings the reader right back to the foundational text about human life, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where human beings are made in the image of God, male and female, equal to image him, and then They are made to have, ultimately, a relationship together where they will become one flesh. Sex was in view at the beginning, but there was something about the union of a man and a woman, different, complementary, equal, that somehow showed the union that God intended of people and their creator. We know that because the scriptures end with a picture of a wedding. Jesus, the bridegroom, marrying the church, the bride. And Paul clearly teaches in Ephesians that marriage between a man and a woman somehow speaks to the spiritual realities of salvation and union with Christ but what about homosexuality none of us should be able to easily sit with this teaching in today's world when I was growing up in youth group we talked about this stuff a fair bit my youth pastor was not shy but we always spoke about homosexuality as something that was out there a couple of years ago I um, caught up with an old friend from that time uh, we'll call him Tom And um, he shared that for that whole time that he was part of the church with me and he sat under that teaching and he was told that gay people were out there to be ministered to, he knew he was gay. And he had no idea how he could find a place in the church When I worked as chaplain at Ivanhoe Girls, some of the most supportive staff for my ministry were gay. They were the closest and kindest and energised out of all the staff for what I was doing. They were my friends. They were my colleagues, and they were help. And in our own congregation, we have same-sex attracted people. We have guests, visitors, family members, siblings, children who are gay. So when we read that Paul says men having sex with men is immoral, What do we do? Well, today, Christians are moving in different directions. Some would say that, well, uh, same-sex intimate relationships fulfill the consent, culture, and commitment markers, and... The arguments against homosexuality in the Bible are culturally conditioned and culturally bound, like slavery, headwear, other things. Their argument is that in the time of the Bible, homosexual acts were always done in the context of exploitation, damage, slavery, And they were seen to be unnatural or perverse choices by naturally heterosexual men who were choosing, or women who were choosing, a deviant act for their sinful purposes. But now, people would say, we understand that lifelong unions between two people of the same gender can be loving, healthy, compassionate, they can be great parents. We love them and we understand that for them it doesn't feel like an unnatural uh, or perverse or deviant choice and we know that many same-sex attracted women and most same-sex attracted men will not be able to change their orientation during their lifetime Furthermore, the church long ago accepted that marriage doesn't have to involve procreation. That's what happened, culminating in the 1930s when the Anglican church said, yes, married people can use contraception. The goods of marriage were split. And so there is no need for a marriage to be able to bring forth children. And if, they say, any sort of sex needs to be in the context of marriage, then in this messy world, gay Christians ought to be allowed to marry same-sex partners so that they can live out the Bible the best way that they can. I have a lot of sympathy with this position. It's a huge thing to be denying people a relationship because of who they experience themselves to be. And the consequences of people hearing that they are denied that relationship often means they are deeply uncomfortable in the church, and I hate that. As a woman, I can testify to the hard and constant interpretive work we need to do on this ancient document called the Bible to apply it faithfully in our current circumstances. And as an ordained woman, I have also felt the pain of being told you are not permitted to do this or that because of who you are. And I know I'm sinful and I'm now in the ruling religious class and I know that Jesus was pretty stern with people who excluded because of the basis of how they understood God's love to be limited. However... I have not been able to come to a place where I think that same-sex marriage fits with the broad intentions of God for the world. Even though there's material in the Bible that says that women shouldn't teach or lead, there is also material in the Bible that says that women were teaching and leading, prophesying, having significant influence in the early church or in the Old Testament community. The creation that men and women were made equal and in partnership uh, is actually deeply fundamental to my feminist outlook on the world. The example of Jesus, including women, speaks to me of a trajectory that has been appropriately followed from the scriptures and that has landed at a place where women have equal positions in society and the church. But when it comes to homosexuality, I don't, and maybe it's a yet, but I don't see the glimpses of material in the scriptures that would set a different trajectory. I don't see the... uh, alternate points of view. And I see a shape to the whole of the Bible where men and women somehow image the purposes and the unity that God longs to have with humankind. I'm probably not getting it right in terms of my understanding and how I'm living out gender. I know that I'm breathing the same air as everybody else and it's probably why it makes me want to cry to even say it. But I don't, at this time, see a way forward in the intentions of God revealed in Scripture to affirm that gay sexual expression, not homosexual desire, that is actually probably pretty normal, and uh, part of what it means to be broken human beings, everyone. But gay sexual expression does not seem to me to be able to be given uh, the mark of acceptability to God. But I do find other things, and I thank you for your patience. There are things I do see in the Scriptures First of all, I see the spirit and salvation poured out on people who don't fit a heteronormative mould. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Eunuchs were people who could never have heterosexual sexual fulfilment. And yet in Acts 8 our namesake, St Philip, baptises an Ethiopian eunuch, no questions asked, no requirements for him to fit into a 1950s nuclear family church. Who knows what his inner feelings are? Who knows what his life and passions were? Who knows what his sadnesses were or his weaknesses were? No one had to conform to a particular sexual identity to be able to come to the Lord Jesus. In this absolutely fantastic book, A War of Loves, by David Bennett, really recently written Australian, uh, David Bennett, a gay activist, rejected all Christian things, finds himself the recipient Of God's love poured out on him in ways that he cannot deny. He becomes a Christian, joins a church, lives as a partnered gay man for years until he decides that in his reading of scripture he cannot in good conscience continue to live that way. But God did not reject him at any point and I marvel at the welcome that he must have found in churches to be able to continue to explore and go deeper and find grace as a man in a same-sex relationship but seeking Jesus. I also see a new and powerful dignity and vocation in singleness and celibacy. Today we feel that the only human flourishing can come through sexual expression. But Jesus was a single person. Jesus did not express himself in genital sexuality. But the teaching of the Bible is that he was truly and fully human. And that he showed us what it was like to be a human being in community, full of close friends, living life in the service of God. I find a call to all people to put our bodily desires at the service of Christ. It doesn't matter whether you want to gossip. Doesn't matter whether you want to, whatever it is. Doesn't matter whether you want to commit adultery. Doesn't matter whether you are a heterosexual person tempted to premarital sex. The call is to all people to put our bodily desires at the service of Christ. Another amazing book is called Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill, another same-sex attracted man who has chosen the path of celibacy. And both he and David Bennett really taught me that perhaps the purpose or why God continues to allow uh, so many people, including in the church, to experience same-sex attraction was this uh, dignity in sacrificing sexual desire for the sake of the gospel. Reading these, and Heidi's read it too, it makes you want to be a better Christian because they are following Jesus in a way that is so sacrificial, but it is the call to all people. And finally, I see a Jesus of grace and fresh starts. As the crowd gathered around the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said these things that really shape who we ought to be as a church. He said, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, he said, has no one condemned you? Well, neither do I condemn you. And he said, go and leave your life of sin. Jesus' grace and fresh start is offered to all people at all times. It doesn't matter whether you have mucked up. It does not matter. We have all mucked up. No one is, I wanted to say, no one is dirty. Actually, no one is not dirty. We are all in need of the cleansing of Jesus. And he says, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Maybe that takes years. Maybe that looks really, really complicated. Maybe the church says, you know what? We understand your situation. And we're going to work together to see how you, your partner, and your children can come to know the Lord Jesus in this context because his grace is for you. He does not condemn, but he says, go and leave your life of sin. Amen.